You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Ready for this amazing book, the book of Malachi. We're in chapter 3, just so you know, so you can open up to Malachi 3. How many of you guys are going to get up tomorrow and you're going to go to work and you're going to slug it out to have resources for, to bless those that you're in relationship with? Oh, come on. No one? No one, no one goes to work anymore? <laughs> the pandemic is over, people. Come on. <laughs> well, that's truly the context, um, uh, the context of our passage for today in Malachi 3. I was saying last week that the book of Malachi is like God the Father calling a family meeting. He calls his sons, calls his daughters, and he's like, hey, listen, I want to help you out because you're really messing up your lives. He's doing it because he loves them and he wants to intervene in their life because they really, they have ruined their relationships. And first, they've ruined their relationship with God. Um, but enough with the intro. I want us just to get into the text, so I would ask you to stand and I want to read the whole chunk that we're going to go through, and then we're going to go to work verse by verse, if you guys are okay with that. If you're okay with that, say an amen. Amen, amen. amen. So Malachi 3, from verse 6 all the way to 18. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will men rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine is the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Amen. You may be seated. Again, this passage is going to be really tough, I think, but I am actually excited to see what God's going to do in our hearts not only today, but from now on with this word. So I really pray that our hearts this morning, just like every day, not, not only Sundays, but every day, as we, as we eat of God's word, that it will actually bear fruit. So I pray that the Holy Spirit will do that in, in all of our hearts. So 
What we're going to notice in the remainder of chapter 3, because we, we, we went, I think we looked at five verses last week in, in chapter 3, is that these people, the Israelites, are not really interested in relationships. They're just not in mending their broken relationship. They primarily care about their money. They care about their resources, right? They're like, God, we want more money. God's like, let's talk about that after we talk about our relationship. Because this is not working out. This is not healthy. Some people know what it's like to, uh, you know, they've, maybe you've got grown children. They don't really want a relationship. They just want your resources. They want your money, right? If the phone rings and if they show up at the door, they're like, yeah, they're, they, they're here and they want money. I totally understand. My two-year-old loves me for the things that I give her to. They start really young. Let me say this. Life is about largely two things. This is what dominates our time and our energy, our relationships and our resources, our relationships and our resources. And God wants the relationships to be first and the resources to be second. Let's jump in with verses 6 and 7 and see what God says. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the day of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? That's a big statement, isn't it? I, the Lord, do not change. That's how God starts today's passage. I do not change. When we talk about God, we refer to God in terms of uh, something called his attributes, right? That God is holy, God is loving, God is just, God is sovereign, and on and so forth. And the attribute that we have here in verse 6 is that God is unchanging. God does not change. That's a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing. And let me just say this when speaking about the attributes of God. The key to understanding God is to have all of God's attributes exist co-equally and consistently co-equally and consistently. Problems happen when we take, you know, one of God's attributes and we elevate it above the rest of them, right? We have, at that point, we have an inaccurate and imperfect view of God, and this happens all the time, right? We do this all the time. Let me give you an example. If you take the sovereignty of God, that He rules over all things, and you don't consider the other attributes, you end up with something called deism, right? Just giving you one example. Now, deism says that God is far away. He created the world, but he's far away. He doesn't really care about us. He doesn't really get involved in our life, right? That's just one example. And that's a lot of people actually have that mentality, right? Because they elevate one attribute above the others. Some people will say that God's only attribute is love, right? Right? Uh, and, and by love, they mean, you know, you can do whatever you want, right? But God's also holy, just like we sang, just like we read in the Bible. Now, all of his attributes work together, and here in verse 6, one of his attributes is revealed, and God declares, I'm unchanging. I never change. Why is God unchanging? Why is he unchanging? What does that mean to us? Well, because he's perfect. <laughs> That's why he's not changing. He's perfect. The reason we're still needing to change is that we're imperfect, right? God gets it right the first time, if I can say that. God is holy. God is good. God gets it right the first time. God doesn't need to change. He's perfect, and that's the whole point, right? Now, let's look at how, you know, the verse continues. I do not change. Therefore, 
or children of Jacob. Did you notice the family language again? Family language. So God's going to stress the relationship, their relationship with them, before he gets to talk about instructions, the blueprint, right, and, and the rules. Here's what he's actually saying. You're like kids that have run away from home. How many of you, you know, have kids here and have tried to run away from home? Sometimes when they're little, they even do that. They do it literally, right? And when they are older, they get their driver's license and they, they run faster, right? They draw faster, right? I had some friends in Canada, and, and uh, they had some major problems with one of their kids. I mean, this, this kid from the age of three or four, every time they would take him outside and just, just you know, kind of set him down, put him down, he would just book it straight without looking left, right, behind him, just book it. He could probably go for miles and miles. I mean, they lost him so many times they lost count. I kid you not, just boom. But the point is, is this. Sometimes even those of us who are adults and we're grown, right, we act like, I'm sick of it, God. I don't want to do this thing anymore. I'm leaving. And God's like, where are you going? <laughs> what are you going to do without me? You're like, I don't know. But some of us have run away from God. Some of us have rebelled against God. And you may say, I, I don't think that's true, Obi. What, how, how do you mean that? Well, some of us haven't picked up our Bibles in a long time. That's what I call running away from God. You haven't prayed in a long time. You haven't been to church in a long time. You haven't been consistent in a long time. That's kind of like running away, if you ask me. But what happens is some of us may get the idea of, God, have I run away so far that it's over? Is it done? Right? What God is saying here is you ran away, and here's what I want to tell you. It doesn't matter how far you've run from God. If you turn around, I'm right there. I'm right there. Because God was pursuing us. God was pursuing them, and God is pursuing us. God is pursuing, and that's what he's saying here. He's looking at his people, and he's like, all of you have run away, but if you'll just turn around, I'm right there. I'm right there. I'll take you back. Let's work on this relationship. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've gone, right? I don't care what you've thought. I don't care what you've said. If you'll just turn around, God says, I love you, and I'll embrace you. His heart is a father's heart. And here's the good news. He doesn't change. This is huge. He doesn't change his heart or his mind or his commitment to his people. That's absolutely amazing. God will never wake up and say, I loved you, but I don't love you anymore. I just don't feel like it. Looking at your life, not really deserving it. So, eh, change my mind. God never says, I adopted you, but now just, nah, just going to just rip that covenant, just, just destroy that contract. No. God doesn't say, I did forgive you, but nah, you're really pushing it now. I'm not going to forgive you anymore. When God makes a commitment to you, the Bible says, even when we're faithless, he is what? Faithful. That's the kind of father we have. That's our heavenly father. And in the world where all of our relationships are fluid, all of them, and all of our relationships are changing, it's really nice to have one relationship that is steady and consistent and faithful, isn't it? Listen, the reality is that people move. Relationships transition, or even the people that we love, they pass away, and they're no longer with us. But God doesn't change. God doesn't quit. God doesn't just, you know, call it quits. God doesn't just, you know, he stays. He stays and he's faithful, right? That's the relation that God offers to his people. And so this unchanging nature of God, it gives us certainty. 
in security, right? It gives us clarity. It gives us an absolute commitment from God. And how amazing is that? And by the way, he's the only one in this entire universe who knows us best and still chooses to do relationship and, and to love us. Amen? And God is pursuing his people, and he says, I'm trying to work, work this thing out. I'm trying to work at our relationship, but you just, you just you don't want to. And they immediately say, no, let's talk about money. Nah, let's just talk about money. Let's talk about resources, God. God, we don't want you. We, we, we want wealth. We want houses. We want cars. We want, you know, just possessions and stuff. God, we would prefer if you were not our father. We would prefer if you were an ATM machine. And some people have this relationship with God. They want God for what he gives, not for who he is. Listen, friends, God doesn't mind giving resources, but he values the relationships more. Before we get into the next cluster of verses, I need to make a disclaimer. And these verses are widely used, abused, and misapplied. Most Christians have never heard anything from Malachi except for this. <laughs> except for this. And this is the preacher's go-to passage. You know, show me the money, right, passage. And this is the verse where God's a pinata. In this verse, it's kind of like the stick. So let's just stick and just, you know, and then, and then all the blessings shower on our families infinitely. No, no, that's not what it is. But people abuse this passage. When there's a desire for the leader and for the pastor to get money, they go to Malachi 3. There's something called the prosperity theology. And this teaching is that you give to get. You give to get. It's like an investment. And people who subscribe to this heresy misuse Malachi 3. The sad reality is that we have a lot of American pastors and preachers that, that go to the poorest places on earth and, and they teach this horrible theology and they go to and they're setting up these unhealthy churches where people are hurting and suffering and they are in need. And as soon as they, they hear that if you can give a little, you get so much, poor people fall for it, right? It's like going to God saying, how can we manipulate you and make you give us what we want? That happens. So again, those who would misteach Malachi 3, they would say, if you give, God will bless you. God will give back. And ironically, that's what they're doing. I mean, what, what they're doing is they're encouraging the same heart that God is rebuking here in Malachi 3. Church, we do not give to get a blessing. Giving is the blessing. I'll say that again. We don't give to get a blessing. Giving is the blessing. So here we go, verse 8 and 9. Will men rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithe and contributions? You are, you are cursed with a curse. You are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Will men rob God? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Interesting thing to note in the Old Testament, based on God's instruction in regards to finances, God's people were called to have kind of two pockets, right? One is the tithe, which literally means a tenth or 10%, and the other is contributions, other giving. And this, this would have been, this included feasts and festivals and gleanings for the poor, right? Now, most scholars will tell you that it's hard to get an accurate total 
about all the tithes and the contributions, right? But, but because you're dealing with an agrarian society. I mean, some people will bring their goats. Some people will bring the, 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 their fruits, right? So it's really hard to pencil that out, right? But even so, we, we may have a rough total on tithing and contributions. Different scholars will say that the grand total for their gross, not their net, because that's what it means to give the first fruits, right? To give your first and best to God, it was between 20 to 25%. Some say as high as 27%. What do you think about that? It's pretty high. And so what God is saying here is you're giving very little. You're giving, you're not giving what I have asked. Remember Raz, a few weeks ago, he was preaching from chapter 1 and how they're bringing blind and lame sacrifices. They're giving their worst and they're not being generous in their heart and they're not grateful to God, right? So the leaders are participating in this, the, the priests are participating in this, and the people are like, we don't want to do what God wants, okay? I'm like, cool, cool, we'll, we'll make a deal, we'll get rich, you know what I mean? That sounds good, sounds good, that's a good plan, but that led to a lot of problems. It always does. Let's continue with verse 10 and see what happens next. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, God says, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Interesting, right? This little line is very interesting. Put God to the test. You need to know that's the only place in the Bible that I, I find something like that, to put God to the test. Because we are to trust God and not to test God. So this is very unusual. Very unusual. In fact, there's one occasion where Jesus is walking on the earth, and he's got a, and, and Satan approaches him, and Satan puts Jesus to the test. And what does Jesus do? Do not put the Lord your God to the test, because it's satanic, it's demonic. And so, what is happening here in our text is very unusual. Now, this issue of testing God, the question what we need to ask is this: Is this a one-time command or an all-the-time sort of a command? Which one is it? See, there are commands in the Bible that are just one time. Not all the time. Meaning God told someone to do something, but we don't do it. That's not because it was wrong or it's wrong, but because there was a unique situation or circumstance. Right? I'll give you an example. God told a guy named Noah to build a boat. Right? Now, if God told us we're gonna, you know, that you need to build a boat, what, what would you do then? Well, first, we would check that with wise counsel, we would go back to the Word, right? And we, we would pray and go back to the Word again. And if God told us to do something, that we would need to obey that. But the truth is that He only told Noah and his family in a unique situation to build a boat. It was a one-time command, not an all-the-time command, right? But really quickly for a quick test, because I'd love to dig deeper into this, but we just don't have the time. The command which says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Is that a one-timer or an all-the-time command? I'm sorry? <laughs> Amen. Let's go, let's go further. Verse 11 and 12. This really, this really gets, um, gets really, really good, really good. So verse 11 and 12. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now, what God is talking about here is stewardship. Stewardship. 
Did you know that about 800 times the Bible talks of stewardship? 25% of, of Jesus' teaching is on the theme of stewardship. That's big. These people come to God and what they say is, Lord, we are suffering. And God, God, God says, well, it's because you're not stewarding well. That's why you're suffering. Let me just state the obvious. If you don't steward your health, you will suffer physically. If you don't steward your relationships, you'll suffer relationally. If you don't steward your soul, you will suffer spiritually. If you don't steward your finances, well, you'll suffer financially. Sometimes, church, listen to this, sometimes our suffering is unjust, right? Sometimes our suffering is mysterious. We don't know why it's happening. But sometimes our suffering is caused by us. And in this instance, right, in our passage, they are blaming God for their suffering. God is showing them that their suffering is a result of their failure to steward well. This happens quite a bit in our life. And we're like, Lord, why are you allowing this? Dude, you're ruining your life. I got the blueprint. It's right here. I'm willing to work, it, to work at this with you. We're like, no, no, I'm not. I don't care. Just take the suffering away. It doesn't work like that. So here's the big idea when it comes to stewardship. God is the owner, we are the managers. That's pretty simple to understand, right? God is the owner, we are the manager, and, and stewardship has to do with two things. It has to do with managing well, and it has to do with being generous. Two principles. But you need to do a good job at doing both at the same time. If you're only generous, you're going to bankrupt yourself, right? If you're managing your resources but not generous... Here's the truth. You'll be generous to yourself, but not to God and others, and that's a no-no. And when it comes to being generous, we need to understand that God doesn't just give to us. God wants to give through us. That's so big. That is so big. First, what a good steward realizes is what James 1.7 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Well, let me just say this. If you start to think this way, it will cultivate in you an attitude of gratitude. So think of it this way. You drove here in a car, right? Think for most of us. Whose car is it? Don't say it's your car. <laughs> Whose car is it? It's God's car. So then, hey God, thanks for letting me borrow your car to get to church. Um, when you go home tonight, wherever you live, that's God's house, right? It's like, hey God, thank you for letting me sleep here. You're pretty generous. It's a house. It's a dwelling place. When you go to bed, it's like, hey God, thanks for letting me use your bed. It's really awesome, you know? The people in your life, hey God, thanks for sharing your people with me. The food you eat, hey, thank you, Father, that I'm not, I'm, I'm, I get to eat some of your food. That's why we say grace when we eat. It's not just the superstitious or religious thing that we do. It's to remind us, right, that this is a gift from God. Amen? Friends, if you start to see everything that you have as a gift from God, it really opens up a childlike wonder and gratitude, and it combats against this gravity towards entitlement which we're very good at here in the west at the same time let me just remind us that we all have stewards in our own life we have banks right that we keep our money in right 
what would happen if you go to the bank and you're like, hey, I, I'd like to take out some money from my account. And they're like, uh, I know you told us to put it in the savings, but we just pocketed it, you know? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> How would you feel? <laughs> that would suck, wouldn't it? <laughs> right? That would really suck. We tend to look at things from our perspective, and here we need to do Google Earth, right? Pull up and say, how does God see it? Right? That's how we run our lives, by God's principles, not ours. And what God is saying is, I gave you and you didn't steward well. You thought I gave it to you, but no, 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 no. I gave, I was trying to give it through you as well. This 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 is the key. God doesn't just give to us. God gives through us. What happened is this. God gave to them, and they closed their hands. They closed their hands. They didn't understand that the hands need to be open because then some of it can pass through to others, right? And as soon as you close your hands, God can't give you anymore because this is not a position in which you receive. It's not. You just can't receive anymore, right? The Bible says in Luke 16, 10, that he who can be trusted with little can be trusted with much. Did you know that this... And Luke, this was actually a context of finances, in the context of finances. And God says, if I, put, if I put something in your hand, can I trust you that you would steward it well and, and be generous at the same time? If that's the case, I can give you more. Maybe. It's not a, you know, give and get. It's not. But I can probably give you more. And perhaps I can allocate more resources to you because you understand it's mine. And you're being a good steward and you're learning and you understand that a lot of it needs to pass through your hands to bless others. Here's the good news. When we give, we don't give to get a blessing. The giving is the blessing. The Bible says in Acts 20, 35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. The Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. This is what God wants to see when in, the, in, in the hearts of his people. You, you, do, do, do you want to know what? It all starts with a relationship and a recognition that we have a father who is generous, who is good, who is loving, who is kind, and he gives us grace and compassion and forgiveness and relationship. And when he gives to us, he wants us to keep our hands open so that he can give through us, so that we can share in his joy by sharing it with others. Now, that's the heart of what's going on in this passage. They're just like, God, we want more stuff. And God's like, how about we work on our relationship first? It's not healthy. It's not healthy. If our relationship is better, then your hearts are going to be better. Then I can give you more. But until then, I'll just be funding a rebellion. It's a hard no for me. Right? So keeping in mind the principle of stewardship and generosity, are we as Christians to tithe? Just like in the Old Testament? That's a pretty good question, right? Well, it says in Romans 6, 14, to the Christians, to us, you are not under law but under grace. Let me just remind you that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament was the law, right? It was all of God's rules, all of God's decrees, all of His demands, things that you have to do. The truth is that we have all sinned. Right? We've all broken the law. We, we failed. That's the whole point of Malachi. They failed, they, they failed in everything. The whole point of Malachi is to prepare for the coming of Jesus, the Savior. Because Jesus comes and he fulfills all the law. Okay? Are you with me? He is sinless. 
right? He is perfect and He gives us grace. And we now live under the grace of Jesus who has fulfilled the law. We no longer live under the law, okay? That's really good news. But this continues. I'm not, don't, don't, don't get up and go to the bathroom now. This is a horrible time to go to the bathroom, right? <laughs> Just hang in there. Additionally, there is a verse in the New Testament where tithing is mentioned, the only one where tithing is, me- it's, uh, tithing is mentioned. It's actually, it comes from the lips of Jesus. Well, all the Bible comes from the lips of Jesus, but I meant it in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way. Matthew 23, 23, right? Woe to you, says Jesus, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, is you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Do you get that? These guys that Jesus is rebuking are religious leaders that do not have a great relationship with God. They could care, you know, they could care less about relationships. They're like, they're like kind of like the people in Malachi, right? But they are really serious about their money, about their resources, but not very serious about their relationships. They could care less about justice and mercy and faithfulness, right? But they love talking about money, you know? Jesus is not impressed. So Jesus doesn't necessarily rebuke tithing. No, he just says you should do it in a way that it's relational, loving, gracious, generous, right? That's what he does. Furthermore, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. This is a big portion of Scripture, so we, don't, we can't really look at it now, but it's good homework for when you go home. But these two chapters talk about that our giving should be, and it's kind of, I'm just doing a big summary here, right? So if you're interested in how should we give, these are the principles in these two chapters, right? This is a summary. Our giving should be cheerful, regular, sacrificial, and generous. Go home and read those two chapters. You'll probably agree with me. And that's the new covenant living We give out of proportion, and so it is according to income. So for the people that say, well, we don't practice the Old Testament's ways anymore, so I'm not going to tithe anymore, right? In a tongue-in-cheek way, you actually may want to stick to the practices of the Old Testament because you may be giving more otherwise, in a tongue-in-cheek way. What I would say is that living under grace should cause us to have a standard that is higher than the law, than in the Old Testament. I have proof for this. And by the way, it's not that we don't practice the Old Testament anymore, because I hear people, oh, we're not going to go, we don't care about the Old Testament. No, 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 no. It's not that we don't practice the Old Testament anymore. It's fulfilled in Christ, but He gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can exceed the demands of the law. Amen? Let me give you an example. I think that it's in Matthew 5. The Old Testament has a commandment for us. So one of the ten, don't commit adultery with your hands, right? That's the command. Jesus says, in addition, you should not commit adultery with your heart. Oh, snap. (laughs) Is that a lower or a higher standard? That is infinitely. And Jesus does this to pretty much all the commands. Like he just raises the bar right? That's a higher standard because by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, by the new life in Jesus Christ that we have, not only can you keep your hands to yourself, you can keep your heart to God and to your spouse. Amen? Amen. So what I would say is that perhaps some of the Old Testament requirements are a floor and not a ceiling. 
right? A floor and not a ceiling. And some of us then would ask, well, how much should I give then? Just give me a number. Throw, throw a number at us. My answer would be, ask God because he's the owner. I don't know. <laughs> ask God because he's the owner. You're the manager. You need to ask the owner how he wants you to manage his money, his resources. All I know is that your financial giving based on the passages in the New Testament that we just kind of studied is it's got to be cheerful. So make sure whatever you get, it's got to be cheerful. And make sure it's got to be regular. And make sure that it's got to be, uh, where is it? I'm, I'm losing my spot here. It's got to be regular. <laughs> oh my God, I just lost it. What is it? Sacrificial. And the last one? There we go, generous, generous. So make, make sure you keep that in mind. And somehow, it should be more than what the Old Testament requires. Just a quick footnote. If you think that you can get away with giving 10% and then just, oh, I'm keeping 90% for myself. Oh my goodness, I'm just going to bask in that. You're really not understanding God's heart. Because some religious people will do that. Will give 10% and then they could care less. All that 90% is on them, and they could care less about thinking about the poor and the, and the marginalized. That's not God's heart. Sure, you can give 10%, and that's awesome. I, I'm sure God is honored, right? But just remember that all of your money is God's money. Let me include this little footnote in there as well. I wish that every summit person would have been here, because this is my chance, right? I, I never really talk about tithing, but this is, this is the moment, right? We're like, oh, you know? <laughs> Anyways do with that what you may. If you call Summit Church your home church, I think it just makes sense that you start here with your giving, right? Right? If you invest your money here anyways, if you're a part of us and you invest the, the, the time, the time, right? Because time is such an important resource as well. If you invest your giftings here, this is a church, right? You invest your giftings as well. If you invest other resources too, why not your finances? I, it doesn't make sense, Right? Just as the church is in need of people to invest their time and give things, well, the church is in need of finances too. I'll leave it at that. It's not about the resources though, ultimately. It's about the relationship. Father, all of it, all that I have is your stuff. Do you, what do you want me to do this year with it, right? And he will tell you, and here's what's so great about God. When we give, we get to share in his joy. Amen? Let's continue with our passage in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Some of us here this morning may have hard words against the Lord. No one really knows, but it's in here. That's fine. These people are not atheists, right, that we're talking about. They're angry. They're frustrated. They're unhappy. They don't understand why things are not working out in their life. They look at all the evil and the bad people in their lives and like, hey, they're healthy, they're rich, right? They have amazing families, they have all that they need. What about me, right? They see themselves as good people, comparing with the evil and the corrupt people in their life. And our finances are all over the place. And we're not, we're just not healthy. What's going on, God? And let me just say this. First and foremost, that's a sick and corrupt heart. It's a sick heart. It just is. If you look out there and you always constantly are comparing yourself and you say, God, why do you take care of all the bad people, but you're not taking care of me? You're the righteous one, or however you call yourself, right? God looks down and says, they're all bad people, all of you. 
All of you, right? There's, there's the bad people and then Jesus. That's it. Two categories. Two categories, right? Not three. Not three, right? Jesus is over on the other side, all by himself. The rest of us are all sinners fallen short of the glory of God. But how many of us are here today, maybe, and you're just frustrated with God, right? You're like, I'm sick. I want to be healthy. I'm poor. I want to I have some money. I got fired at my job, and the, the bum got the job. Oh, I know his life. I know that, you know. I love my kids. My kids hate me. What's going on, right? So what are you doing, God? Really? I pray. I pray consistently. I, I read my Bible. Some of us may say, man, I, ne- I would never say stuff like that, but you think it. Here's what I, wanna, here's what I want you to know. God can handle us. He can. <laughs> what God says is, your, your words have been hard and offensive and untrue about me. And what happens when you have hard and untrue and offensive words towards God, and if you don't deal with it at the cross, what tends to happen is your heart can't take it. It will harden on you. You're not meant to carry that load. It will crush you. It will crush you. God can take it, but you can't right? God can absorb it, but you cannot. And he can absorb it because God loves you and, he, and God does not change. I don't care how far you've run. I, God is not done with you. I don't care how freaked out you are about a, a certain thing in your life or some of the terrible things that you've said or, 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 or thought. God absorbs it. God endures it. God meets us where we are so that we can unload this pressure that can crush us. But not only that, God meets us where we're at to lovingly walk us to where we should be. Both are true. That's the Father's heart of God. Isn't that amazing? Okay, verses 14 and 15. You have said it is vain to serve God. I mean, really? It is vain to serve God. That's what what they're saying. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Did you know that sometimes the children of God are like children? We're like kids. I kid you not. We're like my two-year-old. We, we say stuff like, ah, it's just vain to serve God. It's a waste of time. Ah, he doesn't do anything for me. Forget it. I'm just going to walk away. I volunteer at my last church, and those people are just, oh, they're so annoying. Once you get to know them, ah, you'll never go back. God, just so you know, you're good to the wrong people. You're good to the wrong people. You took a vote. We took a vote, and we decided it's a waste of time to serve you. Verse 16. Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who fear the Lord and esteemed his name. There was a remnant. Praise God. (laughs) There was a group that sort of came to their senses. You know what? Maybe God's not the problem. Maybe we are. (laughs) You know? Maybe we should focus on the relationship with him first and stop demanding all this, you know, all the money and all the resources. Maybe we should have our priorities be his priorities. They spoke with one another and the Lord paid attention and he what? He heard. God hears. God hears our prayers, church. Sometimes we wonder like, hey, am I praying to the ceiling or what? (laughs) 
No, no. You're praying to your dad. You're praying to your father who is loving and infinitely good. And what this group that, that had the, the, the heart change decided to do was to write a book of remembrance in God's presence. What, what, what is this? Journaling. I don't know. I don't know how else to say it. They wrote a book of remembrance. You know what this is? This is recounting the faithfulness of God. Do you do that? Do I do that? Here's my assignment for us this week because it's Thanksgiving week, right? Well, we shouldn't do this just only for this week, but every time. You need to write a book of remembrance. I challenge you, church. I challenge all of us. Before we ask for what we want next year, how about we need to thank God for what he has given us this year and take this week to do that. This is how the children of God develop and cultivate an attitude of gratitude which works against this gravity of entitlement. No, it's mine, mine, mine. Remember what we said last week, Friday, at our Friendsgiving? For those of you that were here, thanks, thankfulness is a sin-conquering force as well. Because once you cultivate this attitude of gratitude, of this heart of thankfulness, it means that you are content and satisfied in Christ and with what Christ is giving you. You're just satisfied. I don't need anything. You're my shepherd. I shall not want, right? There won't be any need, any craving, any passion to look elsewhere, but only in Christ because you're satisfied with Him, right? So again, we call this journaling. As a Christian, I would encourage you to do this before the end of the week and just start to look back at this. You can actually go further back if you want, sure. And just ask, what has God taught you this year? And, mark, and put it down. What, what, is, what has He saved you from this year? What has He protected us from, from this year? What has He given us this year? I guarantee you, you probably won't have that many, you know, notepads and, and you know, to, to, to write all that stuff down. And then how does he want you to manage that and steward that so that you can be a blessing for others? So start there. And what that will do in the presence of God, it will build your relationship with God first. And then the resources can work themselves out. They really can I'm not saying they're not important. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying they're in secondary priority position. Verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Let me ask you this. What's your most treasured possession? What is it? Car, house. That's not for you. I'm not insulting you. I'm just saying people usually... You know, we'll say stuff like this. Well, my house, my, my beautiful exotic car, or my status, my success. Here's what God says. My people, that's my treasure. That's huge. And what God says about you, you're his treasure. I look at my life, I'm like, nope, <laughs> don't see it. Right? But he says that. His word goes, not mine. That's amazing. And they're looking at him saying, give us treasure. He's like, no, no, be my treasure. Be my treasure. The most treasured thing we have, Summit Church, here at this church, Summit Church, after the presence of God in Christ and is the people of God, all of us here. You are a gift. You are a blessing. You are a treasure. I want to speak that over all of our lives so that you can rise up to be 
who God designed you to be, his treasured possession. Amen? Amen. Don't live like you're not his children. Don't live your life like you're not a treasured possession. I mean, you know, paralyzed Christian lives, you know, where sin dominates and enslaves. That's not how we ought to live, right? Live more like who you are. Live more like who you are, children of God, free from the bondage of sin, living filled with joy in a broken and sad world, living with authority for His glory. Amen? Amen. Let's look at the last verse, verse 18. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. Again, we see in the entire Old Testament is people who are unfaithful to God. Just people are unfaithful to God, right? Relationally, they have failed them, right? Resource-wise, they have failed them, and we see God who is very, very faithful. And He wants to, and He is working on, on their relationship with, with them, right? He's, he's trying to get their hearts to open because He wants their hands to open as well so that He can start to bless them and give through them as well. And the whole point of this is to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. You know, this last verse is so clear about the fact that there will be a very clear distinction at the end between the genuine followers of Jesus Christ, the ones that truly serve God, and the ones that do not. There will be. For now, it's not as clear because we, don't, we can't really tell hearts, right? But God can. God already knows. You may not be able to see it clearly now because people hide behind Christian slogans and smiles and, hey, God is great. God is good. I didn't ask how God is doing. I asked how you're doing. And the inside is probably sick, right? So how do I know if I'm a genuine follower of Jesus then? That just kind of begs the question, how do I know that? How do I know? And let me just pull it, put it in a different way. How do I know if I, that I truly surrendered to Jesus? We, we don't really hear that word anymore, but allow me to use it at the end. But let me answer this question by sharing kind of the last two verses, and then I'm done with, with sharing the word for now. Philippians 3, 7, and 8. Whatever gain I had... <laughs> Check this out. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. How many of us can say that? Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That hits like a ton of bricks. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, meaning garbage, in order that I may gain Christ. Wow. See, the, the picture of surrender is that once we were enemies with God. We were. That's what the Bible says, that our, our lives were at odds with God. We did not submit to Him. We didn't. We were not surrendered to Him. We were our own masters doing our own thing. Robbing God of not only everything that He's given us, but our souls as well. Then a miracle happens. Jesus saves us by sheer grace and by the faith that he sets in our hearts. We're born again and everything just turns around. 
And the reality is this, that for the genuine believer, he doesn't want to withhold anything from God anymore. How are you doing with that? He is eager, he's excited, he's passionate, he's, he's ready to be totally at his disposal, right? And to do anything Jesus wants at any cost. And we want to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit that he supplies to us so that in everything he gets the glory, not us. That's what I mean, or that's what this means to be saved from the old way. That's what it means to be surrendered to Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why Christianity in the West looks the way it does? Kind of weak? We live our lives, but there's not much proof that we're Christ followers, right? We live spiritually handicapped lives, dragging our feet, spiritually speaking. Do you, do you know why? It's because we haven't fully surrendered to Jesus. We haven't. I just look at my life. We still hold on to so much for ourselves. We hold on to our goals and dreams and, 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 and aspirations. God's kind of like an accessory. Yeah, he's invited, but not over everything. Come on now. Amen. I need to live my life a little bit, right? And the sad part is that we hold on to our sin too when we know that he took all of our sin at the cross. We, we, we hold on to our hurt, our offenses, our resentment, our fear. We're not supposed to do that. We, well, God can't do much, quote-unquote, again, quote-unquote, God can't do much with a heart that's not fully surrendered. But maybe you're here and you haven't given your life to Jesus to begin with. Have you received the gift of reconciled relationship with God through Christ? And maybe some of us will ask right away, what do I have to give? What do I have to, what do I have to give? Give Him your sin. Give him your aspirations, your goals. Give him everything. Give him the worst. Give him absolutely everything, your sin. Listen, and give up your pursuit for a sinful life and trust in Jesus for the life that he has for you now. Jesus wants you to give your worst, and in exchange, he'll give you his best. You give Jesus your sin, he gives you his life, his forgiveness. His Holy Spirit to live the life that, you've, that He's designed for you to live. Do you want to do that? And then as a public declaration, get baptized and commit to follow Him. Right? Would you stand with me? Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.